You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. I'm an advocate for women's rights in childbirth, founder of Birth Monopoly, co-creator of the Exposing the Silence Project, a national photography project on birth trauma, and former vice president of Improving Birth, the nation's largest consumer-based maternity care advocacy organization. You can learn more about my work at birthmonopoly.com. Today, I'm going to be talking to Lindsay Askins, a birth doula and birth photographer, and my partner on the Exposing the Silence Project. Hi, Lindsay. Hello. How so are even you? though I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> Better since our brilliant idea to share an adult drink. Agreed. Even though it is the middle of the afternoon, in the middle of the week. Totally fine. Well, I mean, every time we talk, I always think about like our biggest experience together, which was a one-year-old and two three-year-olds in a car for three weeks together. That was really intense. And it was actually more than three weeks. Oh, it was? Yeah, it was pretty intense. We should have had more wine, actually. (laughs) Well, we couldn't. We were working so hard. True story. I remember... We're too tired. (laughs) I know. We thought, thought, well, you know, this will be really... It's going to be tough, but we're also going to, you know, have a really good time together. And that just didn't really materialize because every night you were editing photos and yes. Yes. And I'm referring to our exposing the silence project for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, which was a photography and interview project about birth trauma and obstetric violence that Lindsay and I launched, um, a couple of years ago, May of 2015. I'm glad you're keeping track of the year. (laughs) And we drove across the country with our kids and stopped in these different cities and towns along the way to interview people and take their photos for this online gallery of portraits. You, You talk about that a little bit, Lindsay. It is. It's an online gallery of portraits, hoping to make it into a book at some point. As of the last month, we've done one physical gallery display where we had actual prints with the woman's captions with it. But right now we are at almost 200 women that we've done now. Our initial tour was 47 women, but now I think we're like at 189 or something like that. Wow. In our gallery. Wow. That's huge. I didn't realize it was that many now. Wow. Yeah. They're not all on the online gallery, but we have spoken to and photographed almost 200 women. Wow. Well, talk a little bit about how you got into this because you were a doula and photographer and... Just a couple of years later, you decided to do this big project with me. What happened in those couple of years? What exactly did you see that turned you from a birth professional to an activist wanting to bring awareness to birth trauma and obstetric violence? Right. So, yeah, a little background. Um, I started my photography business in 2008 um, and did a lot of military homecomings and family photos and things like that. And then I unexpectedly had my first child in 2012. And after that, pursued doula certification with Childbirth International. And within that first year of working as a doula, I saw a lot of things that I didn't feel were good and I didn't feel were respectful. And eventually, as I learned more, I felt were definitely a violation of human rights. And as I worked as a doula, I sort of morphed my photography more towards photographing births 
I like to do sort of a documentary style of photography. So doing birth photography is basically documentary photography. And yeah. so mostly, I mostly do births now, not to say I don't do other photography, but that's sort of how I got to be a birth photographer was from working as a doula. What kind of things did you see that you said were not good? Right. So I guess the uh, journey to work as an activist um, and advocate for pregnant and birthing women was uh, the first traumatic birth I remember vividly was in 2013. And I had been hired only as a birth photographer. Sometimes people hire me just as a doula. Sometimes they hire me just as a birth photographer. Every now and then someone hires me for both. This particular client had hired me only for photography. So in that case, we usually don't do a lot of prenatal work together. Um, I'm not very involved in their prenatal care. Usually there's not a lot of dialogue between us regarding decisions made towards their birth plan and things like that. Whereas when I'm working in a doula role, I'm more involved in those decisions and help to provide resources. So this particular birth, I didn't know the family previous to being hired. I was actually referred by another photographer that I worked with in town and showed up for the birth. First baby, they had worked really hard to become pregnant. And it was an elective induction, which I tried to sort of provide some information towards prenatally that, you know, there's consequences that come with elective inductions. They decided to go for it. Um, well, so let's clarify for people who don't know what that means. An elective induction is when you go ahead and have one not for a reason other than yes. like urgent medical necessity. So it might be, you know, my husband's in the military and he's going to be leaving town and we want the baby to be born before then. So that would be one social reason for an induction. It might just be I'm really sick of being pregnant. I'm miserable. I can't walk very well. And I want it to be over. <laughs> totally. I can't remember what was going on here, but I do believe it was care provider initiated. And I feel like it had something to do with, oh, well, you didn't go into labor at 40 weeks kind of thing. We all know 40 weeks is not an exact science. Well, maybe we don't all know, but there's a lot of evidence to show that 40 weeks is not an exact science. And she most likely would have gone into labor at any point in the next week after this induction was scheduled. Well, so, for a first time mom, actually the average is closer to 41 closer weeks. To 41. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I sort of, again, I, it's foggy, but I feel like she wasn't even to 40 weeks, whatever. So baby obviously wasn't super happy about it. Baby wasn't ready. There was a lot of medical prompting, you know, as far as using drugs and things to really get the baby to come out. She did have a vaginal birth and immediately Upon birth, they whisked the baby over to the warming table as baby sort of had a low APGAR and they felt she needed some oxygen, okay? Which mom was fine with, obviously. But then they just took the baby out of the room to the nursery or to the NICU without any explanation. No, hey, is it okay if we do this? No, this is what's happened. Nothing, no information. So dad obviously goes with baby to be with the baby so that mom can, you know, she's, she's getting cleaned up or whatever they're doing, placenta delivery or something. So now mom and dad are separated and mom and baby are separated. There's no other family at this birth. Nobody else is in this room besides like, you know, the hospital staff, except me. I have no prior relationship with this woman. I'm not the doula. So I don't have that relationship with her. I'm literally just supposed to be a fly on the wall with my camera. Thankfully I was there because this woman was a disaster and I sort of had to step into the doula role. And that was the first- what do, you, what do you mean by a disaster? What does that mean? Uh, hysterical crying. 
I mean, just hysterically crying. Because obviously, physiologically, as, as mothers, we want our babies in our arms immediately after giving birth. We don't want to be separated. And if we are separated, obviously, we all want an explanation as to why. She couldn't talk. She was crying so hard. So I said to the nurse, why, you know, what's going on? Why? She just wants to know. She doesn't understand. Like, why is the baby gone? No answer. No answer. Right, right. Nothing. So it's making her worse. Obviously, she's probably going through, like, her worst fears that something's yeah. right the baby because no one's given her any information. And that was the first time I witnessed just a, a, a massive lack of respect, a lack of regard for her as a, as a person, as a mother, as a paying customer, as someone who is in a very vulnerable situation physically, you know, all the things. And I literally had to speak for her because she couldn't stop crying enough to form a sentence, to ask the questions that I felt she was trying to ask the nurse was very dismissive. Oh, don't cry about it. You've got the rest of your life with the baby, you know, things like this about just dismissing her feelings and, and almost sort of mocking her emotional response to being separated from her baby. The pediatrician, I can't remember where he was from, but there was a serious language barrier. It was very hard to understand him. So when he did show up and try to explain things, we, we were getting every third word and trying to piece together what he was trying to say. It was a very thick accent. The nurse kind of helped, but whatever. So this goes on for hours. And we don't know why the baby's gone. The dad hasn't shown back up. Long story short, mom and baby are separated for a total of 17 hours. Whoa. The mom really wanted to nurse. She had said that out loud. I mentioned that to the nurse, like mom's concerned about her breastfeeding relationship, blah, blah, blah. Dad's a mess. I could keep talking about this for hours, but that was the first time that I saw just a really horrible situation that, that just didn't have to be that way. It turns out the baby was fine. It turns out her APGAR wasn't what they initially told her. It turns out she was completely healthy in the NICU the entire time. None of which we knew at the time, obviously. But the problem there, the bottom like underlying problem there, and this is consistent with what you and I have learned, you know, in speaking to women and with our project, was just the lack of information passed to this woman. It was just how she was treated. It wasn't the fact, yeah. it wasn't only the fact that the baby was separated. It was the fact that nobody was telling her what was happening. Where yeah, it was like was. the baby was out and she's like an empty husk with no... Yeah. And she then is meaningless. She doesn't... Meaningless. She, and her emotions are meaningless. Oh, quit crying. You, you, she'll be back. You know, just... It was bad. They did end up having a successful nursing relationship. Baby's healthy. All the things. But that was her introduction to motherhood initially. That's after she worked very hard for that baby. I can't imagine being hysterically crying for my baby having it taken away at birth with she no never touched it. She never saw the baby. They whisked. She never even looked at the baby's face. Like they just took it. Wow. That was the moment. I remember I left the hospital and obviously I was keeping it together while I was in the room. But when I left the hospital, I just fell apart and was falling, called my sister on the way home. I was a mess. And that was the first, that was the moment that I was like, this isn't okay. Like I can't stand in delivery rooms and watch this go on and just, Oh, well, that's how it is. Like, no, that's, this isn't okay. That was the beginning, I feel like, of when I started seeking out a more activist role and how to advocate for, for women and that maybe can't for themselves or don't know that they need to or, or whatever the situation may be. Yeah. And since then, obviously, I've seen a lot of, um, you know, episiotomies where the woman either isn't told, no one asks her permission, you know, she doesn't even know that they've given her an episiotomy, even after birth. Just things that are standard in care that are hugely traumatic, a violation of human rights, and just setting women up for a lot of trauma postpartum, whether, yeah. the, whether providers realize it or not. I think some do, and I think some don't.
Yeah. And you've worked in a few different states, right? Yes. Um, Arizona, California, and now I'm living in Rhode Island. And then you and I have heard stories from all over the country. So <laughs> it's definitely not a geographic specific problem. <laughs> I definitely think it's worse in certain geographic areas than others, but it is, it's a nationwide problem. Yeah. Well, we went it's from, a problem. yeah, we, we started in Berkeley, California, we did. around San Francisco, which is about as progressive, progressive. Yeah. as you could get mm-hmm. and um, went all the way across the country ending up in Manhattan, another place where you would think there would be a lot of choice and a lot of respect, I guess. And I was really surprised to find that was absolutely not the case there at all. Yeah. And I also expected there just to be in a a city like New York. I mean, look how many Mm -hmm. restaurant options you have. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Why is there a lot of maternity care options? Like it just seemed like there wasn't a lot of options in a place I felt would have a lot of options. Right. Well, even even like the doulas we talked to who would have a lot more perspective on what all the options are. Right. We're just like, yeah, there's not really a lot. It's not that great. It's not like, hey, go to one of these five hospitals and one of these 20 midwives or doctors and they're wonderful and you can be guaranteed that you'll be respected and your your legal rights will be respected and your wishes will be respected. And I didn't get that feeling at all. There. I didn't either. I mean, I know just from social media, there's a, a decent home birth midwife community there. But if you don't want to have a home birth and you're choosing a hospital, it, it did seem like there was not a lot of choices. Yeah. And no birth centers. True. Also that. Which I think there was one. And I hope I'm not saying something that's not accurate. I think there was one. And I think it closed. I want to say it was in Brooklyn, maybe. Yeah. And there, and there's only maybe like one other in the whole state of New York, maybe two. Wow. Yeah. You would just think, I mean, I feel like even upstate New York tends to be more progressive, but I don't, I mean, again, I don't think that's always an indication of what you might find. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about the photography project some, I mean, obviously I could talk about this, but I want to hear it from you. <laughs> I'm interviewing you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I can talk about, photographic like artistically how I kind of like came to be in my head do it yeah this is a cheesy story <laughs> but I was in a yoga class everything starts in a yoga class right no I was in a yoga class <laughs> does, and it? So, does it? <laughs> it maybe in San Diego it does um for me it, for me it starts in the shower but oh okay. that's a good place too that's a good place too I think <laughs> my kids are usually like yelling when I'm in the shower so that's not really a productive thinking place for me so I'm in a yoga class and there is a Um, I don't know if you call it a project, but a a photographer that runs around New York and photographs random people on the street and asks some sort of... Oh, Humans uh, of New York. Humans of New York, yeah, but he asks some some sort of question to prompt them into telling, you know, something about their life or their day or whatever he's trying to do. And then he just takes a snapshot of whatever they told him and adds it to their portrait that he takes right there on the street. And it was this... I think he started it because he was like bored with his corporate job or I don't know, some, some weird, he just was doing it for fun and it turned, blew up into this huge thing. So he's got a, he's got two books out now and there's a Facebook page and a website and all the things. So I really love it. I follow it. And it was just really neat because sometimes you would see a portrait of somebody and then what they say is maybe not what you're expecting. And mm-hmm. that was really cool. That just the whole like, yeah. book by its cover kind of deal. And so I followed him for a while. And then there's another project called the veterans vision project 
where a photographer went into the homes of veterans that are suffering from PTSD. Um, and he would kind of Photoshop an image together where he, uh, image of them in their uniform, all trim and at attention. Some of them are saluting. And then he's got a Photoshopped image next to it of how they're actually feeling inside. So, mm-hmm. I mean, gra- it's pretty graphic, but it shows, you know, attempts at suicide and how they're feeling depressed or anxious or whatever, but showing like the signs and symptoms of PTSD, how they're handling PTSD, mm-hmm. or maybe not handling PTSD. But that was just so, it's just such a stark contrast. You know, you may see them on the street. And <laughs> I hear um, a kid. I know, I hear a kid. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Keep going. Again, she just took a nap. Um, <laughs> so it's just a contrast of how you might perceive them if you were to run into them at Starbucks or wherever. It's mm-hmm. not actually how they're feeling or how their day is going. Yeah. Not, not really seeing what, below the surface of the cover. And that's how I feel women who are carrying birth trauma are. And you and I had this exact conversation, you know, we're mm-hmm. at the playground and little Johnny's playing with little Susie and whatever. And we're chit-chatting about Starbucks or the weather or our shoes. And on the yeah. surface, this woman seems happy and fine and she's enjoying motherhood and the kids are healthy and everybody's fed and blah, blah, blah. But maybe 15 minutes before she came to the playground, you know, maybe she's in the fetal position on her bathroom floor, just crying and not not being mm-hmm. able to handle life. And that's why she's at the mm-hmm. park because she had to get out of her house and she had to go talk to adults and try to be healthy. Mm-hmm. But we talked, I think initially, didn't we talk about going to people's homes? Yeah. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. Because I remember specifically talking to this one woman who said like she had a spot in her bathroom where she mm-hmm. would go. Yeah. Um, because she was having PTSD, like mm-hmm. major symptoms and yeah, so that was like one of the versions of the project that we talked about. Do we ask these women, show us where in your house symbolizes what's happening with you? Or because, like how you're handling it, processing it, dealing with yeah, it, surviving yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because for a successful professional woman with a beautiful child to say, actually, the bathroom is where I spend a lot of my time, like in that corner on the floor, like right. curled up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. because of, you know, the flashbacks and the the panic attacks. Yeah, anxiety, depression, inability to cope with just the overwhelmingness that is parenting. Mm-hmm. I just remembered, I, I think it's worth mentioning that, that you're in a military family. Mm-hmm. And so you have seen PTSD, like in real life with, mm-hmm. you know, in that, just being in that community. Mm-hmm. And that gives you kind of a unique perspective on it. And I also think it's really interesting because one of the things that I have been learning about, you know, I've always, and I think you also have had this vague idea that PTSD related to childbirth and PTSD related to combat, there are parallels and there are similarities, Totally, Totally. but it almost seems like a, like a taboo to like, how dare you compare those two things? Absolutely. But then in the course of doing research and interviewing people for the documentary film that I'm working on, we actually talked to a veterans administration PTSD expert who she deals with combat veterans and she was looking at PTSD from childbirth from her perspective as an expert on PTSD from combat. And she said very clearly, the criteria is the same, the Mm -hmm. diagnosis is the same and the Mm -hmm. treatment is the same. Mm -hmm. It's, um, I mean, PTSD is PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. And I 
I think the reason like you touched on it being taboo, like obviously you don't want to discredit the sacrifice and service of our troops ever, but and I think you probably word this better than me, you know, bringing up a problem in a different category doesn't negate the problem in another category, but it's both need to be handled. But I think you're right. I think maybe that's why, I mean, I haven't personally had traumatic births, but I think that's maybe why I have the empathy on the level I do. And maybe just the, uh, I don't know, drive, passion, motivation to give these women a platform is because I kind of get it because of, I mean, I have very close friends that suffer from PTSD and mm-hmm. some of them are sometimes suicidal and I've got girls. And, it, and it's an invisible yeah, it's, it's it's an invisible thing. Totally, a lot of times. It's a backyard barbecue with everybody, and four out of the six people there are combat veterans with PTSD, and like you would never know it. Yeah. Just like maybe five out of the ten moms there have PTSD and had a terrible births, and you'd never know it when no one talks about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the same yeah. thing. I think that's why that Veterans Vision Project like resonated with me so much because I feel like yeah, people with birth trauma are doing the same the same thing. They're like veterans of a birth <laughs> some sort of yeah i was gonna say like a domestic war but that's not what i mean yeah that's not exactly what i mean well, and I, I was i was reading another book that's considered a classic called trauma and recovery i'm reading that right now too <laughs> you are yes. <laughs> yes. it's fantastic it's well great. and i i don't want to misquote don't want to misquote the author but she said something like the combat neurosis of men and the quote hysteria of women are one. True, they're the same. Yeah, that the the psychological and emotional problems that come from domestic situations related to marriage and sex, reproduction, have the same. You know, when there's violations that occur in that sphere, it has the same effect as the violation. Or I'm sorry, it has the same effect as the human being who is put in a combat situation with horror, violence, stress, life and death decision-making, watching your friends be hurt and killed. And even, you know, just the psychological terror, not, not necessarily from being hurt yourself, right? but just that overwhelming stress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine, I mean, this is me speaking very ignorantly, but I would imagine that some of the triggers may also be parallel for both of those groups of people. Like what? What can you think of? Loud noises, large crowds, nighttime, darkness, trying to sleep, nightmares. I mean, maybe even just parenting. You know, a lot of, a lot of people come back from combat with PTSD and, and parenting is very hard for them. It's hard anyway. It's hard for the healthy person. It's a stressor. Yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, it's overwhelming for the, for the mentally and physically healthy person. And then if you're not in a 100% healthy spot, that just that's even more overwhelming. So I could see some parallels with as far as what it would trigger panic attacks, anxiety, depression. Triggers between, and symptoms. Yeah, between the two groups. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lindsay, let's take a quick break. Sounds good. Okay. This is Birth Aloud with my mom, Kristen Lusketchi. My mom works at Birthman Opti. <laughs> this program is supported by attorney Susan Jenkins, a national advocate for midwives and birth activists, specializing in business, governmental, and political issues related to birthing rights and the practice of midwifery. She can be reached at area code 866 
686-1348. Would you like to support Birth Aloud Radio? Please contact us at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. We're back with Birth Aloud. So over the break, Lindsay and I were just chatting about um, a, a particular situation with one of her clients. And we remembered as we were talking about it that it happened um, the same weekend that Lindsay and I first met each other in person, which was the year prior to that, 2014, or the year prior to our project, 2014, right. mm-hmm. when I went to Los Angeles for to teach a workshop on women's legal rights. And Lindsay drove from Arizona. Arizona. Six hours, girl. To be there. <laughs> pregnant. I was pregnant. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, so I did this like full day workshop on legal rights. It was awesome. Left. Thank you. Left, was in the airport, and I got a phone call from Lindsay. Like hours later. Literally. Yeah. And said, <laughs> I don't know what to do. I have a doula client. She's being threatened. Tell the story. She had received a court order to um, oblige or consent to comply, consent to comply yeah. with a cesarean. Um, this woman was carrying twins. Um, she loves to tell this story. So I know she doesn't mind if I give out details because she, she actually participated in our project as well. She's in the gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's very open about this story because it was so ridiculous. Um, she was young. I feel like she was 25, 26 at the time. Four previous vaginal deliveries, uncomplicated, healthy kids, healthy pregnancies. Um, this fifth pregnancy, she hired me to be her doula. And the entire reason they were trying to get a court order for her to consent to a cesarean was because she was carrying twins. She conceived the the twins naturally. She was having no pregnancy complications, Um, but they put her in a high risk category from day one, regardless of her vitals, you know, blood pressure, weight, all the things checked out. This is a small town, so we only have one hospital. And so she called me as I was leaving your workshop and hysterical and tears, obviously, that she'd gotten this court order from the hospital to have the cesarean. And she was only, she had the babies in April and you did your thing in like February. So she was still a couple months out. No, it was in March. Mm -hmm. She had the babies around Easter. So I guess she was what, 35 weeks or something like that. Um, it wasn't like they were trying to make her do it next week. It was, that's how ridiculous it was. Is they were was, just like, saying, yeah. plan on this being a cesarean yes. in the yeah. future. And there was like, no medical, not going into labor. Correct. There was no medical indication that she needed that. They were literally just trying to get her to do it. Yeah. Which, so, which by the way, is, you know, um, well, no, no, I was going to say, it's, it's kind of up in the air. It's kind of a gray area. I think for a long time, we just assumed that the, a cesarean was the safest mode of delivery for babies. Um, but even in the last like two or three years, we've had more research coming out that says, actually, no, there, mm-hmm. that is not a true, that's not something you can depend on. There is no, with, you know, all things being equal, it is not safer for twins to be born via cesarean. 
So and, it wasn't, I, I, you know, I just want to make the point yeah. that it is not an entirely unreasonable thing for a person yes. to say, I choose to have these babies vaginally versus by surgery. Right. And I do have friends and clients that have chosen surgery for multiples because that was something that they're more comfortable with. And, and that's fine. The whole point of it is it's, it's your choice. And in this particular client had said, no, you know, I'm comfortable having a vaginal delivery. That's, that's what I'd like to do. And to be fair, to my knowledge, they're not teaching multiple vaginal delivery or even breach vaginal delivery in a lot of medical schools. So, mm-hmm. you know, in to play devil's advocate, that care provider, that's, that was probably his or her comfort zone to make sure that he was giving proper care. Yeah, he, but then you get into some some ethical and legal issues Absolutely, there. yes. I just like to throw that out there. Because I think... Trying to be yeah, no, I mean, just doing what he right. It might be, they truly, for that person, mm-hmm. for them, they truly believe and know that a surgical delivery would be safer for, for that physician because they literally them. don't know how to do the Absolutely. vaginal delivery. Yes. However, <laughs> there's a big difference between saying you have to have a cesarean because mm-hmm. that's what I want you to do. Mm-hmm. And I am not trained or experienced with this type of vaginal delivery. Mm-hmm. And I want you to have that information and feel free to find a physician who does. If right. that's the choice that you want to make, how can I support you in getting the care that you need versus I'm just going to make this decision for you. And exactly. you're no longer allowed to decide how your babies are born. Exactly. And I think if this woman hadn't had four <laughs> previous uncomplicated vaginal deliveries that that may have been something that she maybe would have not had a problem with, but she knew that she could deliver it, whatever it's the point is it wasn't her choice and they were forcing her to make it her choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so long story short, I did contact you. Um, and we, I think we got a, we had an attorney write a letter to the hospital and they did back off. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it's those kinds of things that as a, as a birth worker, whether it's I'm photographing or, or doulaing, I, I just see oh, what, and what are the odds for that mother that she happened to hire a doula who happened to have taken a legal right. rights workshop that, that is literally <laughs> the only one in the country <laughs> who happened to have, you know, a direct line to an attorney, her, to her buddy, who's a lawyer, uh-huh. who's willing to do this uh-huh. for free Pro from another state. Yes. From yeah. Florida. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, it just makes me wonder about all the women who... I've spoken with who have been threatened with court orders for cesareans. Well, no, but you wonder how many other women have been threatened with those court orders and have just complied. Like totally. they didn't even have to get a court order. They just said, we'll get a court order if you don't comply with and this. And they just go, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, a lot because of what else are you going to do? Right. Yeah. That was, that was a big one um, for me just, it, and I did find it, so crazy that I literally was, I was driving home from the workshop about this exact problem. (laughs) I I remember, (laughs) I remember answering the phone in the airport because I was like, like, that is so weird. Yeah. I was like, why would she be calling me? Like, I honestly was like, (laughs) I just, and normally I wouldn't even have picked up a call. Like, sorry, just Full disclosure here. No, you were running, you were in between airplanes. You were changing planes. Yeah. Like normally I I would never have picked up that yeah. And you're like, I have to get on the plane. I'll call you back in two hours. <laughs> I don't know that I would have even known who to reach out to had I not just been to that workshop. 
or had I not volunteered for improving birth and known that there are some lawyers that, that do this kind of stuff pro bono, like <laughs> I wouldn't like have known what five to do. lawyers in the whole country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, if I had never volunteered to work with improving birth, like I, I wouldn't have known that, you know, right. Where we met each other in the first place. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, everything works out the way it's supposed to, but I, I do think that my choices to work with improving birth and to pursue dual certification and all that are, are not a coincidence. Everything's just kind of fallen into place for me to realize like, gosh, this is a big problem. Like we need to change this. Like I can't, this can't be the way it is when my, when my daughters have babies, like this is not going to work. Yeah. So, yeah. Can you imagine me and you with like <laughs> ginger in, <laughs> in 20 years? <laughs> you and I attending her birth with her. She's probably not going to let us attend her birth. We're probably the first two people on the list that aren't allowed to attend her birth. <laughs> <laughs> but she'll be very well informed. <laughs> yeah. Poor girl. Um, hey, so... Uh, one of the things that I wanted to touch on was how interesting it was that in those um, 47 inter- interviews that we did in that initial leg of our project, and then, you know, the other 150, whatever, after that, mm-hmm. how certain themes emerged so clearly mm-hmm. that it was, you know, I'm not a researcher or a scientist. You're not a researcher. I wish I was a scientist. I kind of know. <laughs> I taught high school science. Does that count? <laughs> well, I'm not going to respond to that. Um, <laughs> but there were some things that jumped out so clearly to us. And we were invited to give a talk at the University of New Mexico's like annual women's health conference um, a couple of years ago. And one of the things we shared with all of the, I mean, it was a room full of obstetricians and nurse midwives or providers. Yeah. 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 And I, which was awesome. One of the things that we made sure to share was what we had seen emerge for us really Mm -hmm. clearly as the themes in these women's births. So these are women who had participated in our photography project who had suffered birth trauma and or obstetric violence. And I think the number one theme was what you were describing earlier about the woman crying hysterically mm-hmm. and just being ignored, you know, like she just wasn't there. Mm-hmm. That the theme that we identified was I had no voice or no one was listening to me. It was like, I remember one woman describing it as like being in a dream where you're screaming and screaming and screaming and nothing's coming out. Mm-hmm. Like they're silent screams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the second theme was had to do with the separation of moms and babies at birth, which is something that didn't happen to me, Lindsay. And yet it seems like such a primal instinct. I get emotional hearing these stories from totally. these women. Totally. Describing that feeling of having their babies taken away. Like, I can tap into it on a level that says to me, this is an instinctual gut level. I mean, there's, yeah, it's like a universal, (laughs) it's a universal thing. It's a mammalian trait. Yeah. And this is where I get science geeky on you for a second and pretend I'm a scientist. I do have a degree in animal science. 
Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, guess we're, we are animals. Uh, we are, we are animals. I, we are mammals. <laughs> Um, and I, I spent about 10 years breeding horses and taught things about breeding horses. And then also I personally observed things and learned things on my own, but you separate a, a mammal, a mother mammal of any species. Okay. Let's just back up. You separate an animal, a mother animal, but especially a mammal of any species from its baby. Uh, she's going to try to kill you. Like that's an actual thing. Like you try to take a baby bear from a mama bear, like she's going to kill you. Like that's mm -hmm. her instincts. And I, I witnessed that a lot in breeding horses and it's something I'm not proud of that I was a part of now looking back as a mom, but you know, these horses that are bred every single year, they have a mm -hmm. three, four month old full as they're getting rebred again. Mm -hmm. And because there's a stallion involved, they separate the baby from the mom. So the, so the baby doesn't get hurt. And usually we would stick it in a, a, some sort of enclosure away from the stallion, but where the mother could still see it. And she wants nothing to do with the stallion because she's so worried about not being next to her baby. And her baby is running all over the place, hysterical and hollering for its mother. And I, I remember like, you know, when you hear these stories of, of human mother baby separations. And I think about that, that day we were breeding that mirror and like watching this month, we are exactly the same. We are exactly the same. And there's no, I think, acknowledgement of that mm -hmm. overall in general. I yeah. It's like a, it. it's a suppression mm -hmm. of that biological urge. Mm -hmm. It's very primal. Mm -hmm. I remember not even wanting my husband to hold my first baby, like hours after she was born, he kept saying, can I hold her? Can I hold her? And I was like, <laughs> nope. <laughs> like I just didn't want to give her up. I just wanted her right here. I didn't want anybody to touch her. Like mm -hmm. I wanted no one to touch her. And it was just very primal. Yeah. I'd never, yeah. I was around babies before I had her. That was my first baby yeah. yeah well and you think about the damage that is done absolutely when you when you break it when you absolutely. break that mm -hmm. yeah we were taught when we were breeding like real expensive racehorses we were not quote allowed to go into the stall within the first 15 minutes unless there was an emergency but if, if everything was fine we were supposed to observe and make sure everything was fine because these horses were so expensive we were not allowed to enter the stall for the first 15 minutes because usually a healthy foal will stand up within 15 minutes and start nursing. And you want that foal to get that initial colostrum to get the initial like IgG. Like, so it's a healthy foal because you spend all this money breeding it, blah, blah, blah. It's all money driven. But, but the acknowledgement there that it was the best thing for that mom and baby to be left alone from a health standpoint, because there was so much money riding on this foal. And I'm like, well, we don't even do that in hospitals. Like 15 minutes, like how many babies are, touched by eight other people in 15 minutes besides their own mother, you know? Yeah. But we yeah. knew like if we went in and started touching baby, like there's a chance the mother could reject him. And there was too much money riding on the health of that foal for us to do. Mm -hmm. that. So anyway. No, well, it makes me think of um, the few mothers. And I don't think this has happened a ton, but I can definitely, it has really like uh, impacted me the few mothers I've talked to who had that separation happen or had something super violent happen at the moment of birth, like as the baby was being pushed out, when the baby is actually handed to them, they describe it as like, I don't, I don't recognize that as my baby. I don't have feelings mm -hmm. toward that baby. Mm -hmm. It is like a little, inanimate object that mm -hmm. I have no emotional connection to. Um, you know, they are almost describing like feelings of shock 
and complete numbness and no attachment to the baby. And I can think of a couple of those women who said it took weeks, months, you know, over a year and to get to the bonding and attachment that they felt like, you know, like they, where they felt like they should be with their child. Right. Right. And sorry to interrupt, but I would, I would also want to know like what percentage of those moms that were able to get over that were nursing. Cause you, you take mother baby separation and then take maybe for whatever reason she can't nurse mm-hmm. it's way harder to overcome that bonding. I mean, nursing mm-hmm. does so much damage control in the case yeah. of initial separation. Yeah. 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 And the only reason um, we can overcome all that is because we are critical thinkers as humans, whereas animals are going to act more, you know, instinctually. Mm-hmm. Yep. The last theme that you and I identified was objectification, being acted upon as if you were some sort of inanimate object um, instead of a, a, a human being receiving care. You know, I, I don't know what, I don't know what else there is to say about that. Like it's pretty straightforward. Um, just being manhandled and told or not told this is what's going to happen to you and just having it done mm-hmm. with or without your consent, with or without your input or decision-making or knowledge. <laughs> yeah. Or knowledge. Yeah. yeah totally. Awareness of, yeah. I've seen several births where the doctor performed an episiotomy, never said a word. And when I say never said a word, I mean, didn't ask number one, which I find appalling by itself. Number two, didn't inform before or after or during. Mm-hmm. And I carry that with me. I have, I have quite a few clients, you know, that I was a birth photographer. So I was supposed to quote, keep my mouth shut and stand in the corner and, you know, photograph document that mm-hmm. I, I saw it happen. And I, I keep waiting. Okay. Well, surely the doctor will tell him now. Okay. Surely in post care, like, okay, we've got you all stitched up. Cause we ended up doing it. Nothing, no clue, nothing. Just cut them, sew them back up. Mom has no idea. No clue. And I know because I saw it and I'm always like, do I tell her? Do I wait? What do I do? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it reminds me of a mom I'm working with right now who had a fourth degree episiotomy and a vacuum extraction. And they didn't tell her that she had a fourth degree laceration. So she left the hospital not knowing that she literally had this laceration like all the way from her vagina to her anus. Yeah. And boy, did that cause some problems. Uh, I mean, yeah. Some permanent, like there's a permanent injury on top of the initial, you know, without going into any details, the initial, like a wound to care for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, when she, when she found out how severe it was down there, I mean, it was just like, shocking that no one had even bothered to tell her. I mean, that's something that requires care. You can't, you can't have, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. To have a cut like that and not, and not tell someone. Well, that reminds me. I mean, there's a gal in our gallery. It's same thing. I mean, I complete, complete tear all the way. Like perineum is, is gone. She was in surgery. And I can't remember. I have to look it back up. It was either two hours or four hours, a long time. She went straight into surgery. So mother baby separation the entire time she's in the OR. And this is immediately postpartum the entire time she's in the operating room. 
basically they were putting her anatomy back together. Nobody told her husband why she was in there or what had happened. She gets out of surgery, hours later wakes up, finally gets to meet her baby. Same thing you were just referring to, doesn't recognize him, major bonding issues. Thankfully, she was able to nurse, recovered some of that. Kristen, she goes to her six-week postpartum checkup, still has no idea why she had surgery, doesn't know why she was in the operating room. Nobody told her anything. And she gets in her postpartum checkup, and they're referring to it as if she has knowledge of it. And she, she finally said, I don't know what you're talking about, and I don't know what happened to me, and I don't know why I was in the operating room for hours. Like nobody, what? Unbelievable. Yeah. And I, I feel like it was the anesthesiologist that just literally took pity on her, had empathy for her and was like, oh honey, and sat down with her and basically drew her a diagram of what happened to her body and how they fixed her. She had no clue for weeks. It's so amazing that this, that this is acceptable in modern anything. <laughs> like it sounds like something out of like the 1950s where or they're like- before. Sweetheart, yeah. here's what we did to your body. Don't worry your pretty little head about it. Totally. Yep. I think also, and this is where I have all these weird jobs as my background that I think all contribute to why I'm working and what I'm doing now, but I was a vet tech for 10 years. So we did spays and neuters all the time. And I was usually a surgery tech. We never sent a dog or a cat home having had a spay or a neuter without some sort of post-surgical care. Like, this is how you yeah. do this. This is how you take care of this. These are things to watch for. If you have any problems with this, please call us. Like, for a dog and a cat, like, why aren't we doing this for, for humans with a baby to take care of? That's objectification for sure. <laughs> well, on that note, we are almost out of time. Is there anything else you want to say? Before we sign off, Lindsay? Thanks for having me. Sure. And Thank you. Thanks for doing the project with me. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. And uh, I would like to note, because I feel like now that the project sort of stops and goes, depending on you and I's schedule and our other commitments for our other jobs and our families and whatever, it is an ongoing project. And we Let's are, give people the URL yeah. if they are interested in seeing it. Yeah, if you want to check out the gallery, it's exposingthesilenceproject.com. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook. We basically kind of go where the demand is, right? So how we describe it? We set up shoots in cities for a day or two, depending on interest yeah. level. We yeah, well, and there's a way to contact. People can, can contact you or me through the website. So mm -hmm. yep. they can figure it out from there if they want to. Yep. All right. Well, thanks again. Sure. Thanks for having me. This has been Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, you can email me at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLXU. We'll see you next time.